Welcome to Unsheathed number six, a very special episode of Unsheathed. We have here in our indiscreet location the famed author and raconteur Not Tube. Hi. <laughs> I just want to say that it's so nice to have you here, as opposed to that Tube guy. He's a jerk. I know I hate him. He always <laughs> keeps not taking credit for everything I do. Ah, uh, that sucks. I would just like to apologize to everyone in advance. Uh, Kit gave me a glass of sangria that was stronger than it tasted, so... Yeah, Kit has a habit of plying people with sangria. <laughs> we it? also have a lovely Sangiovese here with us as well as our second special guest. It occurs to me that if I ever run out of writing stuff to talk about, I can always do my own podcast called Uncorked. Yes. That'll just be me drinking and speaking into a microphone. <laughs> Well, Kit, you'll definitely have to make a sangria again next week, I think. Um, so, uh, let's start off again. Alright, so our first question this week um, comes from Foos Q. Fuselmeyer Van Ball. Dear Fox and Otto, it has come to my attention that y'all think that giving advice to the public is your new vocation. Sirs, do you not realize that y'all are arming the enemy? These amateur authors are the ones we must all face in the bloody trenches of the slush pile. By God, gentlemen, think about what it is you are doing. I felt it imperative to warn y'all before you expose the many secrets of the writing profession known only to the initiated few, those gems of knowledge that automatically take a writer from plebeian to published. Especially do not divulge the alchemical formula for instant success, talent, privilege, graft, nepotism, and 10 to 15 years of hard work. If that gets out into the public eye, should any of the enemy realize just how simple it is to be a great author, we shall all be well and truly fucked. Uh, and Foos attaches an actual question in his PS. The tendency for an author to read their own work and hate it, is this simply the author recognizing that they can do better, or are we naturally hateful of all we write? Are those few works that we have written but we still love to be counted among our masterpieces? Discuss. You know, for my own part, the stories that I tend to like most of my own work are the ones that my readers like less. I I don't know that I've found that. I know that generally I can't predict what works people will really latch on to as far as which ones are the best. Uh, I do think that it doesn't. there isn't necessarily a correlation one way or the other. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I really hate most of my own work, which I don't know if that makes me a bad author or not, but um, but I don't I, I generally don't release something if I don't really like it, so uh, I don't know, where, where do you guys stand on that? Well, I think that, you know, even um, the movies that you like a lot like if you're going to see a movie and it's your favorite movie if you watch that movie 20 times in a row, by the time you get to the 20th time, I don't care how good it is, you're sick of it and I think for, for authors, uh, especially when you're writing a story, uh, before you get to the end of it, you know, you've put in, you know, 10 or 20 hours on, on a story and you're in the middle and the idea that was so original to you at the beginning isn't original anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, you're like, oh, how could any, this, I could see this plot twist coming a mile away and this idea isn't fresh and interesting. It's just not to you. And so that can be really hard when you're writing it to remember that just because it's not fresh to you doesn't mean it's not going to be fresh to somebody else. So I think that's a big part of it. I think that's actually a really interesting point because that sort of lends itself to the self-criticism because 
at least before the work gets out there, you're the only person who knows, you know, the work to that level. I mean, once it's released, there are people who can analyze it up, down, left, and right. But until it's there, you're pretty much your only voice of reason for what it is that you're doing. And so it's easy to fall into the trap of not having a second opinion within your own head. Yeah, and it gets, it gets back to something that's kind of part of my theory of writing, which is you start every story with an idea in your head, and you start writing it because this idea compels you to write it. And you kind of go on, and the, whatever you get down on paper is never exactly right. It never really matches what you wanted to do. And so I think from a certain perspective, I can understand writers saying that they hate everything they write because none of it's as good as that bright, shining idea that's in your head that made you start writing the story in the first place. Um, I guess for my part, and you know, maybe this is a, a weakness that I don't, I'm not driven to make them better and better and better, but um, you know, I love them despite their flaws. And I can see their flaws and recognize them, but I can also recognize that from a reader's point of view, the readers are going to fill in those gaps, the things that didn't quite work from your head, that didn't translate from your head to the page. The readers are going to fill in things from their own experiences, and they're going to make the stories their own. And they're going to love them because they don't see the flaws that you see in them. They don't know what that ideal was in your head. All they know is the things that you put down on paper and they fill in the background around what you gave them. Um, and this, I don't, I think I've kind of drifted away from the original question, but, um, so I think hating your own work is a good benchmark, I guess, to, to say, you know, you can, you constantly want to improve and it doesn't matter if you love it or if you hate it, as long as you know the right time to stop working on it and just get it out. You have to have faith in your original idea, though, I think. like There's something that made you want to sit down and write that to begin with that excited you. So, you you know, when you're getting through the project and, you know, when you're three-quarters of the way through and, and you're starting to hate it, you you have to have faith in that thing that made you excited to write it in the first place and remember that when someone reads it they're not going to be spending 20 hours reading it you know it's going to be over for them in, in 20 minutes or right. you know so so um you, you just have to hold on to that and you know like i said before and someone else replied to it silence your inner critic if you can while you're writing it and just get as much momentum from that original burst as you can and it helps to have several things to be excited about in a story so that when one starts to peter out you have something else to keep you going so, do you guys actually hate the things you've written? I have a couple of stories of mine that I look at and I wish I had a better reason to take down other than I just plain don't like it. There's stuff on the internet under a nickname that you will never know uh, that I wish I could make it go away, but I don't own the website and nobody really has access to it. So, it's just it's just there and I cannot make it go. You know, I was, you know... 10 years younger when I wrote this stuff, and, and it's terrible. Like, oh my god, it's terrible. And I wish I could make it go away, but I can't. And you've seen stuff, Kyle, that will we'll never see the light of day. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I've written stuff, too, but I, I never posted any of it online. But I do agree with, uh, I do agree with KM that um, 
a lot of the time the stuff that I like the least is the stuff people like the most and vice versa. The stuff that's a really personal project for me, maybe maybe that's why uh, people don't like it as well. I like it so much because it is personal, but for somebody else it's not going to be personal. And on the note that was raised in the original question as to whether if the author doesn't hate it, does that indicate that that's when it's really good? I don't really think so. I, I bet you would find an interesting trend that if you polled writers on what their own personal favorite works of theirs were, there wouldn't be a lot of overlap with what their reader's favorite work was. And you have to have distance from a project, too, before you know how good or bad it is. And usually it doesn't... I don't, I don't think it necessarily syncs up with, with how you feel about it at the time. Sometimes you write something because that's what you needed to write. And I wonder if, if part of it isn't um, being able to look at your work in several different ways. Like, as a as a reader, as an editor... As well as as the author, because when you're reading it as the author, you know you're you're trying to get into the structure of it, the character motivations, and you're looking at it sort of you're, you're more dissecting the story, dissecting the plot. Um, but if you're looking at it as a reader, you're you're taking what's on the page and just accepting it at face value. Well, too, you're you're when you're looking at it, when you're looking at something as a reader, you're asking what is. What does this mean to me personally? Mm -hmm. how, how does this? What what can I take away from this that's useful in my life? And I don't necessarily mean a, a message, but why does why does it resonate to me? Mm -hmm. You know. So if I read a story in which a character is kind of caught between two worlds, I'm like, hey, I feel like that. I want to see what this how this character resolves this. You know. So then I get very wrapped up in it. But that might not be. That might not make the story good. And I think that actually kind of dovetails a little bit into. A lot of folks have expressed frustration in getting quality feedback mm -hmm. from readers, especially in the erotic writing vein, because if your comic goes, ooh, mer, I love foxes, I mean, that doesn't tell the person who wrote it anything about the actual content of the story. Mm -hmm. And maybe the person who read it didn't care about any of that, in which case, okay, <laughs> suck it up and move on, but... Wow, yeah. I, I, I do remember on sort of a related note that that happens with artists also um i don't know if you guys remember an artist by the name of jen cook but she mentioned once that she had done this piece that she was so proud of and she'd spent days working on and then she tossed off this other drawing in like half an hour of a fox holding a plushie and the fox holding the plushie went for twice what the piece she was so proud of went when she put them both out at auction um and i think that sort of slides into uh a different question about what readers appreciate in stories, like you were saying, if they're just like, oh, it's a fox, I like that, as opposed to the story itself. But I think there's there's something more to this question, which is, would you, if, if you had a story that you'd been writing, and you'd gotten to a point where you said, technically this is accomplished enough, and it's finished, and I can't do anything else with it, but you still didn't like it, you weren't happy with it, would you put it up online well i think i would because i mean if it's if it's if it's if, if i can be confident that it, that it's technically well done and i don't have problems with character arcs or plot arcs or that sort of thing you know it's still it still has merit on that point of view from that perspective and it may speak to somebody in, in a way that it doesn't necessarily to me the thing that we don't like to think about i think is that even the stories that we feel are really 
good from that perspective that we are really happy with. They won't speak to other people the way they speak to us. Mm. Everybody's going to take away something different from it. And it's going to, and everything's going to resonate different with different people. So uh, that's true whether the story is good from my perspective or bad from my perspective. Yeah. And if you've got something that's technically sound and structurally sound, but the only thing that isn't keeping it together is you just personally aren't okay with it. I think at that point, just treat it like any other piece of art and be like, okay, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, put it out there. Maybe someone will like it. So Mm. long as you can look at it and objectively determine that it's not rubbish that you would be embarrassed to have people look at. I think it's worth letting people read it. Okay. That's fair. Uh, do we have anything else to say about this? I think I'm kind of curious what, um, what Mr. Fuselmeyer von Ball meant by hate <laughs> your work. Um, cause I, I kind of keep coming back to that. Or if I think if I had a story and I really, and I really hated, hated, hated it, I'd, I would just bury it on the hard drive, and I'd never release it. Well, but, for me, for me to hate it, it would have to have uh, it would have to have other problems. Just then, you know, I don't think this character arc is satisfying, or you know, right. it would need to have technical problems as well. Yeah, you know, like that I, one that one Lake, Lake Singer pro, uh, story that right, I wrote. Right. That one, yeah, that had huge problems with it that I just didn't feel like I could fix or cared enough to fix to to make it available. Yeah, and so I wonder if he just means hate in the sense of. I'm so tired of working on this story. I don't. I can't think of anything else original to say about it. It, you know, the, I've been working on it for months, and it's. I'm just tired of it. Distance is good. Yeah, distance for stories is good. And I have stories that I wrote ten years ago that I think I'm still interested in coming back to this and 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 redoing it when I when I feel capable of it. And I think we talked about that last week a little bit. Yeah, just putting something on the shelf and being, you know, hey, yeah, maybe there's you know some time we'll do you some good on it. Okay. Well, that was a that was an excellent question, though, uh, and uh, and we have another one coming up. Okay. So this one here is from Wu Wei. Uh, he writes, Kurt Vonnegut once classified writers into two types: swoopers and bashers. He said, "Swoopers write a story quickly, higgledy piggledy, crinkum crankum, any which way. Then they go over it again painstakingly, fixing everything that is just plain awful or doesn't work." Bashers go one sentence at a time, getting it exactly right before they go on to the next one. When they're done, they're done. Now, I'm not sure that I agree completely with this classification. I doubt that many people are complete bashers in the sense of never going back and revising a draft at all. But I have noticed that there are some people who allow themselves to write rough drafts pretty sloppily, confident that they can fix it up later. In episode 4... NotTube talked about letting your creativity flow at first and not letting your inner critic interfere until later, and that seems to fix to fit with the swooper's style. On the other hand, I've always been more of a basher myself. It's just more natural to me to revise at the same time as I'm writing. Doing so sometimes gives me a clue on where the plot should go next. There are multiple drafts, but the differences from one to the next usually aren't huge. So I'd like to ask what you, your thoughts are. Do you think this distinction between bashers and swoopers makes sense? How do you approach revision, and what do you see as possible advantages or disadvantages of bashing or swooping? Not too, since this was addressed to your comment. Would you like to go first? Yeah, um, so I, I'm a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut, but I think that uh, the same uh, quality that he has that that allows you to that simplifies things and allows you to see uh, see it in a in a skeletal sense that makes you helps you to understand it. Also, it makes it sort of useless. 
for mm-hmm. for life. And and what he's doing here is oversimplification. What he's talking about swoopers and bashers, and he loves making up uh, terms for things. But these are these are archetypes. These are the, and really polar extremes of writing. Asymptotes, one might say. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> While Dot Chu composes himself, I'm going to go and uh, just fill in the blank here with something delightful and otterish. Yeah, we uh, the otters have uh, outnumbered the foxes today, so uh, uh, look out. Indeed. Yeah, I'm, that, I'm on my guard. Now, now the readers can again wonder of your state of pantslessness. <laughs> I don't think they were before. <laughs> they are now, and you're welcome. If there's two otters in the room and they're not wondering, then I don't even want to know. But, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, I was thinking about this, and, and you have two people that I think really represent the arch- these archetypes I was thinking about. You have John Steinbeck and Gertrude Stein, and interestingly enough, Gertrude Stein was kind of the uh, mentor for John Steinbeck, but they really, they represent these polar extremes. So Gertrude Stein um, uh, did this uh, experimentation with um, stream-of-consciousness writing, and this, is, would, this would be the swooper style, where she would just go in and try to immediately take what was in her head as she was thinking about it and put it out on paper. And so you come with this, you, you, you end up with this very long extended thing that's, that's difficult to read, but it sounds like how people talk. I'm mm-hmm. doing it right now. Um, the problem with this is that you get lots of repetition. And unfortunately, much as we might like to think otherwise, our stream of consciousness doesn't have a whole lot of original things to say. We keep coming back to the same thoughts over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steinbeck, although he learned from her, um, he approached his writing from uh, the, his studies and his days as a reporter. Every word had to be exactly right. And so when he wrote his stories or his novels, he could spend an entire week on one sentence just making sure that each word meant exactly, like not only literally, but with all the subtext and relation to the other words, what he wanted it to mean. And so he, he, he would be your basher archetype then. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think most people can write either of these ways. As I said before, Gertrude Stein, you don't end up with a lot of original things to say. You get repetitive, and it's very difficult to read. On the other hand, most writers are too much in the moment. Mm-hmm. To they're they're not removed enough from their writing to uh, to really write like John Steinbeck does because when you're when you're in there when you're inside the sentence and you're inside the story you second guess yourself too much you can hobble yourself with your own with your own internal criticism so we don't exist as writers on the on either of these polar extremes we're somewhere in the middle and I think from what I've seen of p- other people that I know that write most people's problem is that they're, they're too much in that self-criticizing uh, self, uh, stage. And they, um, w- when they're there, they, um, they, they lose that joy of writing that I was talking mm-hmm. about. It, it, it cripples them so much that they don't want to continue. And you have to, you have, to have that joy in writing to get through a story. You really do. And I think it goes back to, you know, it's really, really hard to be both a writer and an editor, much less do it at the same time. And the fact that Steinbeck was able to do it is a testament to his brilliance because, um, you know, you're... When did you're, I say Steinbeck the you whole did, time? You have been saying Steinbeck oh, and I thought... I meant Hemingway, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, it no. It works for Steinbeck, too. Well, that's, that's I blame Kit Sangria again, because they made me <laughs> confuse Steinbeck and Hemingway. And I was going to ask, but then I thought if you'd switched and... No, no, kids, don't drink alcohol. It's bad for you. <laughs> so the fact that Hemingway was able to be both writer and editor is a testament to his brilliance, and um, because it's really, going back, to be a writer... As you said, you're in that joy of creating. You're thinking about the characters and the story and the world, the plot, the dialogue. And when you're when you're in the editing mode, you're thinking more of, you know, what do the words mean? Are they in the right order? Am I using the correct word here? Am I punctuating this properly? Um, what if I break up the dialogue here? How does the pacing work? How does the flow? Um, and... And they're very different modes of thinking, and it's really hard to do both at the same time. You kind of almost have to do the the writing and then go back and do the editing. And so I I feel like most more people tend towards the swooper mode. Um, and that said, I kind of feel like I'm almost more in the basher because I'll write carefully, and I do go back and edit sentences as I write them. To but that's partly because I'm reading them over in my head as I'm writing them. And if I write something that's kind of awkward, it'll bug me. And even if I move past it and I keep writing, I'll, I'm liable to go back like five minutes later and say, ah, oh, I know how to make this sound better. And then I'll go back and fix the sentence as I'm writing it. Um, I definitely do that same thing, by the way. As I try not to get too hung up, but I will do one of those things where if something's nagging me, I'll, it'll be in the back of my mind and I'll get like another few sentences in and then go back and fix it. No, I do. I do that too. And I, and partly I'm going back to read because I'm trying to get, I'm trying to build that momentum up again because that momentum, you know, keeps, keeps the flow going. And then I go, Oh wait, well I can't go there. This, this sentence isn't right yet. But I have to say that I'm doing that after having spent, you know, I've been, I've been writing since I was, since I was a teenager, which mm-hmm. is a longer time ago than it used to be. <laughs> and uh, older now than you've ever been. Yeah. And uh, I think that I'm 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 because I I've done it for so long, like it's it's easier to self edit and still keep that momentum going while I'm writing. Exactly. And that's why one of the things that that I think we all say when people ask us what's the most important thing to do if you're gonna be a writer and the answer is write. And, you know, we say that every creative writing course you'll ever take will say that. Every book you ever read on creative writing will say that. You've got to just write. And the second most important thing is read. Exactly. Yeah. And really, it's as simple as that. I mean, if you can, if you're stuck in a mode, oh, I have this story idea, but I don't think the story is any good, and I don't think I'm good at writing it, just write it out. And the worst that happens is you tried and it didn't come out very well, and there's no, unless you're already, you know, working to a contract, there's not like a time limit or a statute of limitations where if you start to work on something, it's, you know, you're going to run out of time and suddenly you can't write it anymore. Yeah, this is one of the interesting things that I noticed recently was I found that my stories are a lot better if I if I plot them out first. If I know everywhere that I'm going to have to go, I know the parts that I want, I'm really excited to write about so I can, I'm ex- I write better so that I can get to those parts and write my favorite bits and but then the story that I'm working on now, I just couldn't plot that out. I couldn't get that that skeletal 
structure in place. And so finally I just sat down and started doing it. And the more that I was doing it, the more I started thinking about places that I could go with it. I started to get excited and that structure started to develop itself. So it's kind of uh, you have to do it to do it yeah. thing. And if you think about it uh, in terms of sort of an analogy, um, I think everybody's had this experience where when you've been driving a certain route for uh, a long time, a year or more, like you, the route you drive to work every day or to get onto the highway, you get to a point where at some point you can be distracted kind of thinking about something else and you'll automatically drive that route without having realized it because you've done it so many times. And writing is the same way. Once you you got to think about it, you've got to think about structure and grammar and spelling and punctuation and dialogue and flow and pacing and, and all that. And when you do it often enough, you'll find that you can actually be focusing on the story and the characters and you will be putting in putting them in these proper format almost without even thinking about it so that when something doesn't sound right it's kind of jarring and and I, I don't know how better to explain it than that except that when I when there's a sentence that doesn't work right it jumps out at me and it really nags I mean, learning how to write is very much like learning a foreign language. You can't just suddenly know how to do it. You need to build up the fundamentals, work from there, and then get better at it until you know what you're doing, until you know how to say what you want to say better. Mm -hmm. It's very similar in that regard. It's just instead of being you know, a foreign language, it's taking your own language and doing something clever and artistic with it. And the cool thing is that practicing is fun. You're writing stories. You know, you're doing what you want to do. Just write, and if you don't like it, you don't have to show it to anyone. And as long as you're, as long as you're listening to what other people say and you keep a sense of humility about your work, you'll get better even though you don't know you're getting better. It gets easier without you even having to try, as long yeah. as you just keep doing it. Yep. Uh, I don't know. What else do we have to say about that? Uh, as opposed to that, one of the things that he asked was where we all fall in the spectrum. I think you kind of that, mentioned yeah. we all sort of lean towards the basher side a little bit. Um, at least yeah. I said I did, and you both agreed. So. I would say that again. You know, I go back to what I said originally that that that's too simplistic. Yeah, and you, I alternate when I write. There are parts that I'm excited to write, and I just those come out like I'll do ten pages in a night. And they're terrible, but, you know, I was excited to write them. So, you know, th those are the parts that I wait for. Those are the parts that are really fun. And I have to do some bashing to get there. But, again, that's – even that's too simplistic because when I'm not at my computer, I'm still writing. Yeah. You know, I'm still – when I'm – my best place, place where I take my problems with the story, I go to the gym. When I'm at the gym, I'm focused – I take a problem with me. How do I get past this? Why would this character be motivated to do this, you know, or – how would we get her? I get around this plot hole. And while I'm at the gym, I don't know if it's increased blood flow or oxygen to the brain, you know, or whatever. But you know, I, I I can work out my problems there. So a lot of my stories get written there, and everyone has their own places. Uh, another thing you can do, which uh, which has worked for me on a couple of occasions, is if you think if you have problems or you're thinking about your plot before you go to sleep, just think about it, think about it, think about it, then. Often when you wake up in the morning, you'll have kind of worked through and, or at least you'll be approaching it from a different perspective. Yeah, and 
one of the things that I've mentioned on the show here before is that I write a lot more slowly than Kyle does just in general. Um, but if I ever had to be so slow that I was spending a week on a single sentence, I'd probably give up and do something else. Yeah, it doesn't seem very joyful. I think you kind no. of have to be you have to be very much in love with the language, um, kind of like Tolkien was, in order to spend that kind of time on individual sentences. Well, we all know how joyful Hemingway was. Oh yeah, <laughs> man loved his shotgun. Yeah, and and if you, I was going to say if that could be our one blowjob reference of the show. <laughs> oh, is that too soon? Is, oh. Does Hemingway qualify as too soon? No, oh, no. no. Okay, no. Um, for me, it's about three weeks ago. If it was more than that, it's not too soon anymore. <laughs> there was something else I was going to say. Oh, I, I remember what it was. I was going to say is that. If you can't be in love with the language, at least be in love with what you're writing about, whether it's drippy, nasty sex or sappy, mushy romance or whatever it is you're writing about. Terrible, tragic partners who were never meant to be together and star-crossed lovers, as it were. Oh, my God. I had that one story about the one one-night stand where people have happy, fun sex, they enjoy themselves, and then they go their own separate ways. Like, they don't become a couple, but they have a fun night, and that's it. And people were all up in my case, that's so sad. Why didn't they end up together? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, if I could have, like, random one-night sex with somebody and just have it be like, yes, thumbs up, and I never saw them again and, like, had no hard feelings, that would be fine. You can, but I'd be sad to leave. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I think I just want to close this discussion by saying, don't worry about whether you're a basher or a swooper or, you know, stone tablet carver. Just write. Do it so that you enjoy it and want to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Practice it. Love it. Now I want to see cuneiform on the, like, story tags on Star. <laughs> well, they don't. I don't think they have that font. Ah. <sighs> You have to upload it as an image. Is that the papyrus font? Are we <laughs> oh. legally not not allowed to use that anymore? I heard no, I, it's it's the type the type of type. I'm sorry, sangria. Go on. <laughs> Typographical workers' union. No, I'm done talking uh, <laughs> <laughs> for the whole episode. <laughs> well, in that case, uh, I think we're close to our time anyway, so um, we can we can leave it there since we've exhausted not tube. Drained him as he, as it were. He's sitting here with us, spent. We have drained him thoroughly, <laughs> and that's a tough thing to do to an otter. We, um, do, we do tend to be moist and slippery. I was going for voluminous, but hey, I can talk again. Hey, <laughs> oh, all right, <laughs> all right. Well, my in- refractory period is uh, apparently passed. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all for listening and sending in such uh, wonderful questions. Uh, I want to thank NotTube for joining us, and hopefully he can do it again sometime in the future because I thought this was a excellent discussion. Oh, I, I liked being here, so yeah. And uh, bidding you good night, I'm Kyle Gold. I am Cam Hirasaki. And I'm NotTube. <laughs>